Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. On today's episode, a very special episode, we are welcoming Will Berger, commentator on the Met Opera radio broadcast, and he's being interviewed by Round Hill Community Church's own Mary Jo Heath. This is a live event that took place here at Round Hill Community Church in November, so we're excited to share this event with you and with our larger audience. So please enjoy. So, hello everybody. I saw a lot of you this morning and or yesterday, so thank you for coming back again for this. Um, My name is Mary Jo Heath, and it is my great pleasure to be here with my friend William Berger. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about him and a little bit about how we know each other. Oh, wait, I didn't vet this. That's all right. Okay, okay. No, you don't get to. Um, Will is now in his 16th season at the Metropolitan Opera, where he wears many hats. I'll just talk about three of them. Uh, He is the commentator on the live evening broadcasts that come from the Met twice a week on the Met Opera Radio channel on Sirius XM. Um, He is also one of the producers of the Saturday matinee broadcasts that are heard from, you know, December through May on Saturday afternoons on radio stations all over the country. He writes and creates features for that. He brainstorms, I say with us, it's not us anymore, it's with the team. Um, He writes the opera quiz, and he's one of the main producers of the opera quiz. And then he's also a writer, and that's kind of the core of who he is. And he writes notes for the Met programs. If you go to the Met, you see the section called In Focus, that's a little background and history of the opera itself. Chances are he wrote that part in the program. Um, beyond the Met, he's a writer of books on opera. He's written one on Puccini, one on Verdi, two on Wagner, one on kind of the Wagner operas, and then a whole separate one on the Ring Cycle. And he's written the new one that we're here to talk about today called Seeking the Sublime Cash. And if you don't understand the title, don't worry, because one of my first questions is explain yourself, sir. So we'll, we'll get to that. But before we get there, I just want to circle back to the commentator-producer part, because that's where I kind of come into the picture. For the first 15 years of his 16 there, I was there with him, and this man was my work husband. We spent more time together than we did with either of anybody in either of our families, like 50 or 60 hours a week a lot of the time, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, we were all awake for all of that time, I'm here to tell you. Always. Being kept awake by the glory that is opera. The first nine years there, I was the senior radio producer, and I was in charge of guiding the team that created all of these broadcasts. And I, I sat, you know, helped write and produce all these features, and then I sat in the producer chair during the broadcasts with my famously four timers timing everything, counting up and counting down and counting the segments and counting this and that, and um, that's my comfort zone, is having being surrounded by timers. Then for my last six years there, I was the host of the radio broadcast, and so I got to sit across the table from this guy on weeknights talking about opera for a couple of nights every week. Um, those evening shows were only slightly scripted, we, I would come on the air and I would introduce what we were going to hear tonight and I would read the synopsis for the first act. And then I basically said, 
take it away will. And he would start doing commentary on the opera, and I would think of questions to ask him about stuff he'd said along the way, and off we would go. And it was really fun. And it was all of an ear of helping the listening audience have a better understanding and more enjoyment of what they were about to hear. And that was sort of our guiding star of the whole, doing the whole thing. So now that I have retired after 15 seasons and left them all to carry on without me, I want to say thank you to you publicly. What a joy it all was. And what a great time we had in our conversations. The time that we had to fill when something went wrong on stage and suddenly there was anywhere from two extra minutes to a half an hour in some cases. We were never at a loss of something to talk about. No. Never, ever. Um, and we were in that radio booth together doing it, and it was just a blast. And I'm very touched that the book that we're talking about today is dedicated to me. So thank you for that as well. That's sure. very, very much. So many of you will know um, Will from the opera talks he's given to the group from Roundhill that has gone to the opera the last few seasons, not last season, of course, but prior to that. Um, that group organized by the head of your music committee, Mr. Ron Heath. Thank you very much. You're still out in the hallway, I know, dear. Um, so, so here's what's up today. We're going to have a conversation about this book in general and a few specific things in it. Uh, we'll have time for some question and answers from you all. And then we will adjourn to the parlor for there are books for sale, both this book and some of his other books that he's written are for sale in there, too, if you want to pick one of those up. He's happy to sign them all. Uh, we have tea, we have coffee, and for the first time since COVID, we have give, been given permission to have cookies. So we got cookies today, and this is, this is like a sea change of excitement to have cookies at one of these things. So thank you to Ron, thank you to Leslie in the music ministry here, thank you for, to Mary for volunteering to help, and thank you to Jenny for bringing cookies too. Um, so uh, I think the whole thing will take about an hour or so, so sit back and, and enjoy it. And I've got my questions ready. I get to ask you questions now, so this is good. So, first of all, let's welcome William Berger to Roundhill. Thank you. So, Mr. Berger, two questions to start. Tell us what this book is about and what does the title mean? Okay. Um, hi. And thank you, and thank you, Mary Jo, for that. First of all, it's great to get an intro and have the bio correct for a change because you know and you were there. So I-, I Pleasure. Yes, I, I got one, I've been on tour, and uh, I got one that said, he edited the student newspaper at Stanford University. I said, I did? That's <laughs> amazing, I didn't go to Stanford University. But, um, and anyway, uh, what is the title? What's the title mean, and what's the book about, basically? Okay, yeah, let me... In whichever order you want. When COVID came about and we were locked down, I thought, let me do something simple. <laughs> and it turned out to be very not simple. But I had some articles I had written for various opera companies, mostly not the Met mostly San Francisco opera, and then some small companies and some others overseas as well. And I thought, why don't I put these together as an anthology and just 
not assume that because I might have had a note in the Opera Hispanica of San Antonio once that anybody read it beyond San Antonio or even there. So I thought, let me put these all together and then I'm going to need a framework of commentary around it, which turned out to be 90% of the book. So for example, for the Verdi Requiem uh, chapter at the Met, that's my program note on the Verdi Requiem, and it's a four-page long essay. And the intro to it that I wrote this time is 20 pages. So what I meant to say was, no, really what I meant to say was, and so it's vastly new commentary. And also last winter, I was giving a lot of webinars. That's what we were doing instead of uh, live performances about opera history and current issues. And I have one of those from San Francisco opera that I did that was really big. Hundreds of people paid money for that. And I thought that was actually really good too. And some other ones related to that that I wanted to write down and include because what that was, was current issues in the performing arts. They were doing a virtual presentation of the Ring of the Nibelung of Wagner, the biggest thing there is. And not just in the opera, it's just, a, a, it takes up all your bandwidth, all the issues that you can unpack from this piece of music. Hi. Uh, and they said, are there, we understand there are controversial issues in this work of art. Do we need to talk about it? And I said, yes, and I need to do it. So that was what we did there, and I was doing that a bunch of times. So that becomes the last chapter of this book, and predictably with Wagner, the longest. Um, and then why the title? So what it actually becomes about is very much where we are now, what is this art form? Why does it matter? And do we bother to resurrect it again at this point? And why? It's very much about this moment. Now, there are issues about, you know, it's not a history of opera with the chapters. It's very random. It happens to go chronologically from the oldest to the newest. But that was really kind of haphazard. That just sort of turned out to be that way. But what it is, is it brings us to where are we now? What are our issues? And how do we, how do we unpack this stuff? The way that we did 100 years ago, or even, frankly, 20 years ago, is not the same as now. And that's not because people are dumbed down, or the world is this or that or anything. It's just because it's different and we're different. And the title refers to kind of the vein of gold in a work of art that I'm trying to get to. That there, <laughs> opera is not, okay, <laughs> let me back up. Opera, it's a weird word. It's the O word. It's something that is held in suspicion by people in this country. And you know this because you've worked in various places, right? And it's, and you know, if you've come to the opera, you know, you get, you get that look when you tell your friends you're going, you get that sort of, oh, really? <laughs> right? And 
That was a knowing laugh. Uh, right? right? <laughs> There's just something vaguely louche about it. And I don't even know what that word means, but it's the right <laughs> word. And so I'm looking for, well, why go? And it's about a vein of gold. It's about seeking that, which I think is what I hope people are seeking anywhere in the arts, in church, or anywhere else. That thing beyond the appearances, beyond what they tell you you should like about it, that how do we get to what's really, whatever you want to call it, divine, timeless, uh, essential about this stuff. So that's what that is. Cash in the sense of a computer has a, a memory storage that is easily accessible. Saving the stuff that's important. Yeah. Okay. And how to, not how to get there, but how to work on getting there. Well, you've written your other books, I know, the, the Verdi, the Puccini, and the other Wagner book, one of your Wagner books, is they're organized in ways that most opera books are. It's like, yeah. here's a book on Verdi, and there's yeah. a chapter on each opera. So if you're going to go to see Aida, you open up the Verdi book, you read the chapter on Aida, and you're ready to go, you have some background to go see Aida. But this book isn't that. No. It's a completely different thing. So boiling down what you just said, yeah. what is kind of your mission yeah. with this book? A couple of things. First of all, with yeah, there are operas in there that you haven't heard of. There are operas in there that you've heard more than you care to of. And it doesn't matter. They're all aimed at everybody. Each chapter is aimed at everybody. But, but the ones that we don't know, are, it's not like it was written here, it was premiered here, it wasn't, it's not that kind of history. No, you can get that. And yeah. you know, you, because, and I, I mentioned that, that where we are today is, you know, as the kids say, you can Google that. You know, I, little parentheses, I had a, I got sent to the oral surgeon, right? And uh, I, I hate to have to do an accent because it's questionable, but it's just so good. He was a Turkish gentleman, and I never get this. I never get this like, oh, you're that William Berger? But he was a listener to the Met Opera broadcast. He was very impressed. He said, oh, you, you're that William Berger? Yes. He said, you, you know everything. How, how do you know everything? And I, I've got my mouth open ready for all surgery. <laughs> I keep Wikipedia open during broadcasts, you know, as far as, you know, what the, the, the premiered here and premiered there, which you need as context, but it's also what are the issues at stake here? Why do they matter to you? So yes, I, and a lot of people have come at me with, well, I may not really know what you're talking about. And it, okay, first of all, that's my job. That's my job at the Met, as you said, when we started that, as I put in the dedication, think of it as a conversation among friends, right? That you're always talking to, I talk to a very wide audience of people who know way more about this stuff than either of us, and will let you know it. Uh, and people who not only don't know anything, but don't want to know anything because they don't want to be opera people because then they're those kind of people. 
whatever that means to them, but you know what I mean? And somehow I have to talk to all of them at the same time every night. And that's my job. So when people say, you, I won't know what you're talking about, I tell them, don't tell me I'm lousy at my job before you even read the book, because I'm not that bad at it. So, yes. But, you know, you asked me what my mission is. That's an amazing question. I appreciate that. Um, because I have guidebooks out there, and, you know, they're very handy. Especially the Wagner book is, you know, it tells you basically Wagner without fear, uh, not how, how to interpret the story because these are great storytellers. These are the greatest storytellers. You know, Wagner and Mozart, Verdi, they could tell a story. You'll get it, especially with Wagner. By the time he's done with you, you'll know what you need to know. What you need to know is what is this thing? What's the context of where it came from? When do I eat dinner? When do I visit the restroom? Very important. If you go to see Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg. Yes, we planned that very carefully the other night. That's what you need to know. The rest of all the great, looky how much I know about Wagner, which you can write a lot of books about. I've written others. Uh, that's, some, that's not the information you need on the way in. That's the information you need on the way out. When you say, now what was that thing I saw last night? With this book, the mission is different, and I started, it only became apparent after I wrote it. Um, first of all, let me just say, I don't, this book, in this book, I don't care if you like opera or not. I'm not trying to make any converts, because that's not my job. I don't work in marketing, and you were very, like, work on your job. It's enough. Um, I don't work in box office. I don't need to worry about that. It's someone else's problem. I do need people to look at this stuff in a different way, whether they're opera fans or not. And I need them to respect it intellectually in a way that it doesn't get respected. And I realize that that's a lot of my mission. And as I was doing that, I realized that it was a very personal journey, too, in that. And it felt like, it felt like sharing something personal there. Sort of, you, you don't need to like it or me, but I do require that you respect it and me. And as I was doing that, I realized that it felt like kind of a personal testimony. And in a sense, a coming out story which I believe everybody has one. I don't think that's just the property of certain people. I think everybody has a self-actualization story. And mine was very parallel to this particular art form. And I wanted to, I wanted to change the narrative about it. With both, from both the people who have been controlling the narrative from the inside about, you know, you should like opera because it will make, you know, make your baby an Einstein baby or, um, you know, it will make you somehow edified or cultural. Let me tell you, that's absolutely not true. World history is full of some perfectly horrible people who are opera fans. 
from the Third Reich on down to the present day. So if, if you don't spend that kind of money to be better, it, it won't do it. Uh, but do spend that kind of money to be, to delve deeper. It will do that. And that's what I, that was sort of what I wanted to do on this. And I, I don't know. I, I have the funniest feeling that at times it might be doing that. I was talking to Boston Library, Boston Public, imagine, Boston Public Library, that's a very like, hmm, thing. And I, I was getting some of these from the audience, you know, and I was like, hmm, I hadn't thought about that. That's the best thing ever. I love that feeling. Well, I, let me share my latest moment like that lately. It's that Ramon and I went to see D. Meister Singer on Thursday night. You guys were broadcasting upstairs, I know. Um, just this much about the story of the opera. It's a guild of master singers in 16th century Nuremberg, Germany. It's Wagner's only comedy. It's about humanity, about accepting change gracefully, about young love, about an insider who wheels it, an outsider who wheels into town, and whether the community will accept him or not, and, and so much more. And the layers of meaning in that opera were just pouring over me and had, had me in its grip all over again in ways that were different than when I'd seen it yeah, in right. the past. That's right. That's right. And it just reminded me of everything that opera can be. And it frankly was the best performance I've ever seen in this opera, will ever see in my life. And I'll never forget. Um, and I didn't mind wearing a mask for six hours. It just kind of went by. Now, you can get the same experience in an opera that's half that long, I understand. But for me, this was, this was glorious. Now, you and I often talked on the air about how opera deals with all these issues mm. that are relevant mm. today and how it reminds us of things, current issues. Mm -hmm. It was all over our on-air chats when we were on mm -hmm. the air together. And I know you talk about those kind of issues in a lot of these essays in your book. It's about where we are now. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're in a really weird place. And you, one, that was a very special performance. I don't know why. Like the universe just came together. Sometimes it does, sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't. Most of the time it doesn't, but it did. But it was also special because we all needed to hear it in November of 2021. And because we were able to hear it in a different way because of this communally very bizarre experience we've all been through together. Maybe that's why those issues jumped out at me yeah. more than they have when I've seen it in the past. Those are certainly important. I mean, I noticed them before, but yeah, I didn't yeah, yeah. notice no, them like I, I noticed them on well, Thursday night. This is some, I, I want to talk about, like the conclusion of the book talks about this. I want to read a little bit from that. Should we get to that now? You want to get to that question? Yeah, let me, let me do this. Okay. okay. So, so here's, here's the question I wrote about that, because yeah. we just kind of discussed topics in advance. So let's skip ahead to your last chapter, which is titled, A Boy, which I will in explain. Italian, well, okay, I'll let yeah, you yeah, no, I won't fine. translate, I'll let you explain. So it's about opera in the post-COVID era, right? Yeah. And um, since a lot of people have been arguing that opera is near dead for decades anyway, 
we were wondering during COVID, is this the moment when it's really going to die, or what do we need to do to resurrect it, or should it be a resurrected? So I asked him if he would just read us a chunk of this chapter so we can hear his viewpoint on all that. Yeah, make sure you spin me back to Meisterzinger specifically okay. again, right. even though I don't mention it here. I do invest in the book a lot, and not only for the good reasons, but anyway. Okay, so yeah, no, I, I put this together the other day for uh, a reading in a very different place. It was in the back of a bar in Brooklyn. Um, and it was really fun. And talk about, you know, well, I don't know anything about opera. Well, I don't care. Shut up and listen. <laughs> okay, um, so this is the conclusion of the book, and I think it'll be interesting right here. Uh, toward the beginning of Act Two of Verdi's Otello, it's not very long, so you, you don't have to have like prompter face or anything. <laughs> toward the beginning of Act Two of Verdi's Otello, the very bad guy Iago, who is a baritone naturally, is alone on stage and treats us to a glimpse of the inner workings of his murky mind. He sings the famous Credo, a diabolic version of the Christian Credo telling us that he is rotten and evil because he's human and humans are filth. At a certain point, the orchestra gets very quiet. He practically whispers, and after so much derision, death, indicated by a muffled thwack on the bass drum. He then spins out in an atmosphere of dread and silence the question, that's the Cheryl Mills version. <laughs> And then a third lower. He answers as if whispering a secret. Oh, that means and then. He answers it as if whispering a secret to himself. Death is nothing. La morte nulla. The orchestra then explodes. Classic crouch and spring gimmick. And Iago declaims as loud as he can muster. And heaven is an old wives' tale. I've never read this in church before. It's really good. Um, and usually this is followed by some spooky moo laugh or other. It's a great moment in the greatest Italian opera ever. We can argue about that later, but it is. And it was invented by Verdi's genius collaborator, Arrigoboito. It's not found in Shakespeare. It's clear to me that the climax of this passage this is something we talked about it. You told me about like, what note does the whole phrase hang on? It's not always the high note, right? Uh, but is the all but silent query a poi? A poi. This is the Verdi who was not so much an atheist or a blasphemer, like a lot of people like to say he is, but a humanist. He simply wasn't interested in what happened after death or whether or not heaven or even God existed. His focus was always squarely on the plight of the human who is pondering these things. That becomes a big issue in the Requiem chapter, 20 pages worth, but anyway. We are in an epoi moment now, in summer of 2021 and November. Opera has died. I know, opera's been dying ever since it was born in 1597. That's part of what I love about it. It's a freakish institution that in a logical world would never have existed in the first place, like the church, right? 
But the global debt, the actual shutdown of the live art form in 2020 is inarguable and incontrovertible. And boy, what now? Do we bother to revive this art form? Should we bother? Why? Have we found that sublime cash that I suggested was hidden deep within? The aspect of existence that opera explores better than any other forms of human inquiry is transformation. To begin with, that's what all operas are about, either directly or indirectly. The, the use of music rather than words alone creates a path by which one can move organically from one form to another, how one thing becomes another. That thing might be an entire universal order, as in the Ring of the Nibelung, or a powerful idea, as in Philip Glass's Akhenaten, monotheism, big. Or a series of emotions, such as an evolution from scheming to forgiveness, as in The Marriage of Figaro, of course. But it isn't only about an actual depiction of such trans transformations on the stage. As you can see, I'm still getting the oral surgery, so, so excuse me on that. In opera's visceral power, it is actually about facilitating an analogous transformational journey for the observational participant, the audience. Here's something important that I've been telling opera management teams of several companies lately uh, to share my personal thoughts about what would get me to spend money on tickets uh, to return to the theater post-pandemic. I don't much care about superficials of what they put on stage, those things that they spend so much time and money trying to get right. I don't care if the singers have technique or diction or if they're overweight or attractive or young. I don't care if the conductor learned the score from this one or that one. I don't care if the sets look state-of-the-art or cringy, lame, or if the lighting is based on the latest technology. I don't care if the director has a concept an agenda or a revelation directly from God. I don't care if the story is being told, if the story being told is confusing or outrageous or comprehensible at all. I don't care if I understand the language in which it's being performed. I don't care if the performance is a high society, fashionable jeunesse doré, Instagram worthy, hip groovy, or otherwise cool event. Rather, I do care about all those things, but only insofar as they get me toward the one thing I really care about. How is any of this going to affect, inform, or otherwise transform me? How will any of this make me an essentially different person than I was before I threw away big bucks and passed massive blocks six hours of my valuable 21st century time to experience it? I want, no, I demand transformation. Attention marketing departments. This is what I believe you should be selling people as we're all moving forward. Of course, I am rather to my surprise, just another old white guy. But I was something else until quite recently. I was a young radical queer Latino just the other day. <laughs> From the wrong side, and I don't even know if there is a right side, of that populous desert they call Los Angeles. It just took me long enough to be classified as an old white guy to be able to articulate all this and get you to listen to it. As a former radical queer Latino youth, 
I know how to empathize with other people's points of view. Art taught me that. Every time I had to subconsciously change the pronouns of every love song on pop radio, or to project myself onto the faces of romantic comedy movies, art, and especially opera, taught me that there is no Tristan after a certain point, and there is no Isolde. There is only the und, the and, that's between them and which subsumes them. I am he as you are he as you are me, and we are all together. Sometimes it takes a global crisis as big as a pandemic to see how the lyrics we classify as nonsense in both Wagner and John Lennon are really the most meaningful lyrics there are. Opera has to be about me and my journey if you're going to sell me a ticket. But that's actually good news. Because I can bounce back after this global death experience. The mechanism to renew my soul and myself was planted within me by a force more powerful even than Mozart. Opera's job and that which opera can do, did I get cut off? No, okay. Which opera can do better than anything, or at least in a unique way, is to help me to get to that sometimes elusive place I already have within. That's why opera is truly a dialogue between the stage and the audience. That's why performers talk about this and this way and the importance of the spaces talk about it this way and the importance of the spaces between the notes. The diva Susanna Phillips, do you remember this? Spoke to us so clearly about those silences as the parts in which she takes in what the audience is experiencing. These are when the singers, the divas, goddesses, and divas, and others, shamans, all, process what the audience is, is experiencing and when the audience is processing what the singer is putting out there. It's where the magic happens. It's also an erotic transaction, really, especially in the Greek procreative sense of the term, but also in the modern understanding of it. Just like any erotic journey, the greater part of the trip is internal. The partner's there to facilitate the journey and you're there to facilitate theirs. Oh, here's another thing I've tried telling management and marketing teams about the transformative power of opera. I made references before. It usually doesn't work. This is another of the many, many ways operas like baseball. In baseball, you can get on base a mere one-third of the time you try. If you can get on base a mere one-third of the time you try, you will literally be inducted into the Hall of Fame. The miracle usually doesn't happen. Disappointment is the baseline. Most of the time, both opera and baseball are just big, fat struggles to recapture some fleeting notion of past glory. But the magic might happen at any moment in either field. And when it does all come together, it's a sublime, communal, spiritual experience. We don't buy tickets for a guaranteed sufficient satisfaction. We buy tickets for a shot at the sublime. Transformation then is the key to this art form. The specific aspect of transformation that opera conveys best is resurrection. Of finding a way forward after some experience of death. 
opera resurrects and it will resurrect itself as it resurrects us. I need to have a relationship with the stage and everything emanating from it in order to be a part of this sort of exchange. I need to recognize myself in the thing on the stage in order to be beamed onto that journey. That might not mean I need to see myself depicted literally. It might, but it probably doesn't. Or to hear my rather squeaky voice in the voices from the stage, or to recognize my exact story in the plots. It means it all has to resonate with me and with you somehow. That's not as hard to accomplish as we sometimes imagine it is. People do this all the time with cute pet videos on YouTube. We recognize our primal desires in the gestures of golden Labradors or fluffy kitties, and we project our inner selves back onto them. We can do the same if it's offered up correctly with fantastical or nonsensical operas. We're capable of anthropomorphism in the videos. We're capable of opramorphism, let's call it, in the theater. Let's find ways to do this as audience members and as merchants of this extraordinary art form. The sublime cash, the magic ring, so to speak, is already within you in the ability and in the desire to transform. The point of art, the golden bow, the magic flute, and so forth, is to facilitate that journey, which lasts all the way to and perhaps even beyond the end. So, there you go. Yeah, snap. snap. <laughs> My yes. drop? No, right. I can't do that. Right. Yeah. Well, Having heard the last chapter, and having read it just the other day, I haven't read the whole book yet, but it just makes me want to read more of the chapters within, which I hear your voice in wherever I'm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a talker who I writes know. words down. Yeah. So that would be a good place to stop our chat, but I do have one more question. Yeah. Um, it's actually not, but go ahead. Yeah, I know. Well, we could sit here all night, I know. Um, this fall in this church, Round Hill Community Church, the theme of the services and the sermons is compassion. Mm. So to connect our chat with this place, could you pick a couple of operas where compassion is a central theme or is sort of embodied in one of the characters or whatever sort of comes to your mind right now? Because you and I both know it's a big part of a lot of plot points and people in opera. There are two things I want to make reference to right now, one being Meisterzinger uh, and another being Verdi, because I'm basically all about Verdi. Um, compassion is literally sympathy, feeling what somebody else feels. And the use of music, get beyond the, the literal interpretations of anything, especially at the opera. Seriously, though, seriously. It's, I mean, that's there to point you to more. And the same is with the opera. That's why we use music, because the spirit says with sighs that which is too deep for words. Meisterzin. You all went. Has anybody else heard it, seen it recently, heard the broadcast? You should. You got to plan. But the reason is it's not all nice. So that's another thing here. You know, the force has a dark side too. But you gave a little bit of the plot and the moment, it, 
It's a historical moment. Hans Sachs, the star character, existed. He's in your hymnal. Sleepers wake, a joy surrounds you. Vok Alf. Vok Alf. Yeah, right. Uh, which is the Met chorus showing off spectacularly. You're just like, whoa. And what that is was his, his hymn to the Reformation. So it was about, it was, and he, this opera takes place loosely because opera plays with time and history like nobody's business, but in the year 1558. And this is really interesting to me because it shows that art is political and spiritual and romantic. You know, he wins the girl and wins the prize and wins her dowry and they form a community and they form a nation where they don't have one and all this stuff is going on and it's all interconnected. You cannot separate that. And sometimes that's not easy. Okay, that's a whole talk. We'll do another time. But what's interesting about that to me is Berti's Don Carlos, which we're doing again this year, which you're not supposed to have a favorite opera when you're a commentator. So, you know, when people ask, what's your favorite opera? I say, well, of course, you know, there's no such thing as a favorite opera. What a ridiculous question. And it's Verdi's Don Carlos. <laughs> um, also takes place in 1558. And it's what it is. Maybe it wasn't at the time because that one really messes with history. And then, and it's big. It's as big as Meistersinger. And then when you least expect it, what comes marching in, but nothing less than the entire Spanish Inquisition, right? It's, it's terrific. Come and see it. But <laughs> voices from heaven and everything. Uh, 1558, and those two operas were written at the same time. They were premiered within a year of each other, 1867, 1868. That's weird. So what I'm talking about here is context, and that's all my job is as a commentator, is to give you context. Do another story on that in a moment. But that means that 1558 was remembered by later people, especially in 1868, as a pivotal year when everything changed. And I think of 1918 as one of those years. Nothing was the same afterwards. The, 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 the toll of the Great War, World War I, that was really starting to hit home. It ended. Everybody realized, wow, what happened? All these people died. And what for? Nations collapsed. Three empires collapsed right away. The map was changed, not just in Europe. And everybody, all of a sudden, there was a global pandemic. Death on a huge scale. Do we shut the theaters? Do we have to wear a mask? All of that. The same thing that was going on in 1558 where communities were asking, who are we? How do we define ourselves? What is the German nation? Who are the German people? Like in Meistersinger. What role does art have in that? And I think 2021 is a 1918, 1558 year. That if I was putting on clothes that I would have normally worn, you know, to work, and all of a sudden everything looked weird to me. Like the colors didn't look the same because it's not 2019. And 
Puccini, for example, wrote an opera in 1917 that when the theaters reopened and he went to produce in 1919, nobody understood. It flopped. Puccini had a flop. The greatest box office genius of the 20th century had a flop, La Rondine. It's a terrific opera. But after the 1918 moment, people didn't hear it, didn't know how to listen to it. They did again 60 years later. It was a charming little love story right. about two people. Right. But the musical language just moment, didn't resonate. Yeah. Later it did. Now it does. Now it's repertory. And all of a sudden in 1919, everybody who, they weren't invented in this year, people think they were, but jazz and the tango were all of a sudden everywhere. My grandfather was a tango dancer. He wasn't from Argentina. He just, in New York, he became a tango dancer. Because all of a sudden, that made sense to everybody where it hadn't before. Because we had been through a communally traumatic experience. And that's exactly where we are right now. And I think what's important is to be open to that. Like when you hear something, I never used to like mushrooms, like regular the white tasteless mushrooms. And now I do. So instead of like, I know. So instead of, so now there's this whole great cheap thing that I can, I'm vegetarian, that I can like make, you know, put more food in the belly that instead of holding on to, but I'm the guy who never liked mushrooms for whatever reason now I do. So I, I make them all the time and I've got all these great things in the freezer. Who are you? Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, how many times did we go down to the cafeteria? It's like, oh, mushrooms yeah, together. Exactly. <laughs> so because, I mean, you have all these things all the time, but sometimes we have one of these pivotal moments together and that's where we are now and that's why you heard Meister Singer in a new way. That's why they sang it in a new way. They performed it better. It was largely the same cast. And I heard it completely differently. Yeah, because the planet's different and your ears are different and the content, all the fuzz, or the dots on the page aren't different, but that doesn't matter. The context is different. And that's really, really important. When we question it, how, where do we go? How do we hear opera? Where do we go to hear it? In what kind of a building? Or in what kind of a cinema? Or on what kind of a radio station? Right? Real quick story, and then I promise I'll shut up, but I'm just so full of things I want to say. Um, and I mentioned this in New York when we did the book launch, but uh, remember, um, I can't even remember her name because she looks like another friend of mine, but our old press... Secretary, like two press secretaries at the Met ago. Okay. She had been involved with, um, she's about my age, and she'd been involved with the punk scene in London in the 70s. As I was, not as much as I pretended I was, but enough to be able to follow her stories, right? I happened to be in London as a teenager, and that's what there was. You know, with the, the hair and the razor blades and all that jazz. I didn't do that, but that's what there was in the, in the live music venues. And we were coming out of a dress rehearsal of Handel's Giulio Cesare in Egypto, Julius Caesar in Egypt, right? Handel office. We love it. A whole different planet. 
you've got to you've got to know ahead of time what to expect or you will run out of there after five minutes ripping your face off because it's not the same world as Puccini or Philip Glass or Wagner. They're all different worlds. It, they're all genres of one, just like this other theory I have. We're all genders and ethnicities of one, I've also figured out. But anyway, they're related. It's all in the book. Um, and she comes out of act one of this Handel opera, the dress rehearsal, and she's walking up to the aisle, and I recognize it with that glaze that you get when Handel is done right, and there's nothing like it. I mean, you know, you could sing it here in the choir, and you know that Handel can nail it. But the operas are all solos. That one's 42 solos in a row with like one duet that sounds like, oh my God, it's punk rock. Two, two voices singing at the same time. So it's its own world. And she came out of it at the intermission with this glazed look and she said, I get it. It's just like punk. And I said, would you care to unpack that? Because I think I need to hear what you're about to say. And she said, yeah, without context, it really is just noise. Zoinks. And I was like, that's absolutely right. It's just dots on a page, any of it, without context. So with the context, you have everything you need to have a sublime experience with any of the classics, but the context changes depending on who, who we are. And the guidebook, the commentary books that were written 20 years ago aren't true anymore. They're part of the evolutionary narrative. George Bernard Shaw, that was 100 years ago, and all that with the ring, definitely read it. But we can't claim that our issues with the, that our experience of these works are his. It doesn't make us intellectual to quote George Bernard Shaw after we see Wagner. It just makes us lazy. What is our context? What are you really feeling and hearing right now? And then you have a late 2021 moment with an 1868 masterpiece about 1558. Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's, that's what it. I meant to say. <laughs> All right, well, I have 26 other questions, but I won't go here. Since um, I have 26 paragraphs of answer for each so, one. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. Round Hill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Round Hill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillmedia.org.